again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched jesus to see whether he would heal him on the sabbath so that they might accuse him and he said to the man with the withered hand come here and he said to them is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill but they were silent and he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the herodians against him how to destroy him this is the fifth and final controversy dialogue the case of the withered hand it sounds like this horror movie when i say it like that i mean but it's kind of a horror movie the way it it, it played out you know as you can see it's the situation has gone from just thinking thoughts about maybe he's committing blasphemy actually they weren't saying maybe um now to plotting his death but as i said before <coughs> excuse me remember that mark groups his stories by topics and not chronologically in order to teach us important things about the order of progression there could have been a year between these events we, we just don't know Everything he wrote shows the situation going from relatively mild and, and even positive to ramping up to something much more deadly and serious. Now, like the last controversy, this one also takes place on the Sabbath and once more no specific location is given. But I want to say that the reference to 1 Samuel 21 and 22's brouhaha between David, Saul, and Dog is going to be hinted at again, like it was last week. Well, that wasn't hinted last week. That was just outright said. You know, with the Pharisees in the role of, of King Saul and the Herodians appropriately in the role of Doug the Edomite. Um... Although these two accounts can be linked and might have even occurred the same day, I'm covering them separately in order to do justice to both accounts. But they obviously were meant to be read in the same sittings so that these associations could be recognized. I mean, let's, let's be honest, if it's a letter, it was supposed to all be read. All the same time, the entire thing. Um, we just don't do that. We have TV, so, you know, we don't have time, right? <laughs> you know, it's flippant, but you know what? It's also true. Anyway, hello. My name is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. It's called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcast of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com 
and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. And I think I didn't mention at the last one the reading list that I've been using for this. You can find it on my blog, and it's either in episode one of my series on Mark or episode two. All right, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, as I was hinting at earlier, don't make the mistake of assuming that the chapters and verses are actually divinely ordained. Okay, Sometimes they break things up that should have been combined. They were put in, you know, just for ease of finding stuff, and not generally for sound theological purposes. Just because this is chapter 3 doesn't mean that it doesn't fit in more appropriately with the rest of chapter 2. And we start out with, again, because entering synagogues is just what he does on the Sabbath, right? It's what all faithful Jews did if they had one nearby. It was a delight to gather on the Sabbath and discuss God's word, which up to this point consisted solely of the Torah, the prophets, and the history and the poetry, you know, also called the Torah and the prophets and the writings. It goes without saying, and why am I bothering to say this, right, um, that none of the first century writings were even written yet. Not like Yeshua was going to open a KJV, right? You know, it doesn't stand for King Jesus version, you know. <laughs> um, I actually did once hear someone remark in dead serious that, seriousness that if the KJV was good enough for Jesus and his disciples, then it was good enough for him. And no, I'm not making fun of it, but you know, it's just interesting the illogical stuff we believe just because it's never been pointed out to us how illogical it is. We have these cultural paradigms, you know, where we we see Yeshua and his disciples going around speaking English, um, King James English, even. And, you know, with all the guys and the vows and the bear. Well, yeah, it, you know, just looking like um, beaming white Jesus who never spent a moment in the sun in his life and certainly wasn't Jewish, right? But, um, you know, you, you get people swearing up one side and down the other that certain fictional verses are in the Bible. And this was before search engines, but even now that search engines exist, there are folks who will not be convinced that their favorite mythical verses aren't in there. No, I'm not going to, I was about to, there's one that's just horrifying. But just in case that kids are listening, just, I'm not going there, okay? My gosh. Okay, so Yeshua entered the synagogue. No word about his disciples being with him, but this, if this was right after the grain plucking incident, that we can assume they were there too. I mean, I don't think he didn't normally travel alone. But there were times when he sent them off. So if this was like later, it could be. Okay. So there among the faithful Jews in attendance was one man with a withered hand. And I have to tell you, this should just break your heart. Because this was a particularly humiliating disability for a number of reasons. 
in the ancient world. We're used to people being disabled and giving them dignity and everything. Them? No. No. Um, okay, so why was it humiliating? One, the association with the sin of Jeroboam. And two, having only one usable hand would mean that the same hand he uses for the bathroom would be the only hand he could eat with or touch other people with as well. Let's talk about Jeroboam's sin real quick here. And we find this in 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> and behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam, remember he was king at this point. He was the first king of the divided Israel, the northern kingdom. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Yeah, they had an altar up there. Not a good altar. I mean, he got the, he had one job, okay? And he immediately makes altars and calves and everything. Bad, 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 bad. Anyway, so Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man of God, I, I added that of God, cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burnt on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, your God, <laughs> not my God, your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Interesting, we see mercy, right? Anyway, and the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you and I will not eat bread. Or drink water in this place. For it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Okay. In addition, Psalm 137.5 lists a withered hand as one of the signs of being cursed for faithlessness, to Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That's an idiom for 
you know, losing the ability to use your hand. Zechariah 11.17 also lists the withered arm as a curse. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. As you can no doubt imagine, those verses did not really bode well for how the man with the withered arm was publicly received and thought of. The withered hand was being associated, well, was associated with being cursed in Scripture. And even though we know darned well that disability can come from a whole host of causes, they didn't. No squat about genetics and um, all the things that can go wrong. They, they had no clue. Everything was about God cursing or blessing you. That was, everything was about that. Um, if you had something seriously wrong with your body, either you or your parents sinned, even if it was only in secret, and you had it coming. Because you had it coming for your parents' sins, too. That's how they thought. Although, you know... I was never sure about this idea that you were born disabled because of your own sin. Was this, like, supposed to be preemptive judgment? Like, I'll tell you what it's definitely like. It's like adding insult to injury. You know, like the guy's life isn't hard enough with only having one usable hand. Folks have to imagine he deserves it, too. <sighs> Verse 2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, oh, by this time, Yeshua was well known as a miracle worker and healer. So I have a question. Why didn't the guy with the withered hand ask Yeshua for healing? The situation is really strange. We have a group called They who were watching him with nothing to give us the slightest hint of who they were, unless they were the same Pharisees from the last controversy, which is actually implied in verse 6. In fact, this entire episode makes a lot more sense if the whole incident of plucking grain in the fields happened on the Sabbath on the way to the synagogue this day. You have the Pharisees who were either following them or who happened to run into them. Could go either way. And uh, who saw... The disciples plucking heads of grain and challenged Yeshua on his disciples' behavior because, you know, he was considered as the teacher to be the responsible party. And, uh, you know, not them. And, and he, especially since they were probably very young. He was 30, and they were, you know, teenagers. And we all know who, how reliable teenagers are, right? Um, says the woman with two 19-year-olds. <laughs> and boys no less. And he drops the mic on them with his response to their challenge. And then we have them, and have, we have him entering the synagogue, sorry. So for the purposes of argument, let's pretend like these people watching him now are the same Pharisees who watched him before. This really makes it look like an escalation in his run-ins with people. First, we saw them well, the scribes, showing up at the place where he was staying in Capernaum, 
And then the scribes of the Pharisees take notice of his eating with Levi. Next, we have what seemed to be normal people asking Yeshua why his disciples weren't fasting. In the fourth incident, the Pharisees were somehow watching him or run into him while his disciples are picking grain. And now there is this watching going on in the synagogue by, for the sake of the argument, for the sake of argument, the same Pharisees who were in the fields with them. Okay. The accusations started silently in their thoughts. Then they were only spoken to the disciples. And then to Jesus directly about the behavior of his disciples by normal Jews. And then by Pharisees about the behavior of his disciples. And now they're pretty much lying in wait for him to act. We have a definite escalation in every account. This would be by far the most serious of the five. But only because the blasphemy allegations um, were never spoken out loud. Okay, Now... They want to accuse him, all right? And they're positioning themselves for the opportunity. So, was this man with the withered hand a regular attendee? Or did they bring him in? Was he an outcast? The chances are pretty good in a culture with no hand sanitizer, where no one wants a one-handed you know, man to break bread with them or dip in the common pot of food, you know, that he is an outcast, all right? I'm thinking he was an outcast. Whether he was a sinner or not, the text does not say. Yeshua certainly does not say. But why would they accuse him if he dared heal the man? Because minor cures were not allowed on the Sabbath. Only life-saving cures. And this is not according to scripture. This is according to, you know, their, their rulings. And yet, this man had no place in the community with a hand withered like this. He had no life. They couldn't afford the luxury of being introverted back then, you know. No one was. You needed community and you were nothing without them. Restoring someone to community was life-saving work. Verse 3. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. Yeshua knows full well that he's walked into a trap and he really doesn't care. The kingdom of heaven has arrived and it's invading our reality in his person. And so that means one thing and one thing only. This man has to be restored. So, Yeshua ignores, for the time being, the Pharisees and says to the man, come here. And that is a word, that word is one you will recognize if you've been following this series. Egero. Oh, that's right, the resurrection word. Woohoo! And I'm going to say right here that Yeshua is flat out provoking them. And that's not all. He's about to double down. And he said to them, verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, all he's done up to this point is tell the guy to come over to him. 
No healing has been performed at this point, but he is about to trap them in their own snare. This was a classic honor-shame debate tactic. Showing one's own wisdom versus the foolishness of your opponent. If you know about honor and shame culture, you know the reason why everything is done in front of an audience, because in that kind of society, everyone's always jockeying for position. And if you want an easy book to understand on honor and shame, my Context for Kids Volume 1 is Honor and Shame in the Bible. So, but I've said many times that if I lived in a society like that, I would probably just hide because this would be torture for me. But this was, of course, as a woman, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be involved in it. But this was their world and their culture, and they knew no other way. So I imagine they very much enjoyed doing this. Men would debate, dialogue, and issue challenges in hopes of winning the approval of the crowd. The Pharisees here had been watching and waiting for the opportunity to accuse him, as per the text, and by doing so publicly shame him as a Sabbath violator, according to their interpretations and extra-biblical opinions. It just doesn't give them a chance, though. And... He asks a question that they can't answer without making it look like they approve of him in just a minute here. They can't say it's lawful to do harm. Right? They also can't say it's lawful to kill. So they shut their mouths entirely. Their challenge was over. He went higher in the crowd's estimation and they didn't even get to launch a volley and had possibly even given him the opportunity by bringing the the poor soul to the synagogue in the first place. So they fell into their own trap. But what Yeshua says is far more damning in the Greek. The word translated kill is apokteno, and it's a word used in Greek for political assassinations. We'll get back to that in a minute. He obviously isn't saying that they will be killing this man if he's denied healing. So that remark is kind of puzzling to the rest of the crowd because they don't have a narrator. Lucky us. Make no mistake. He just said to them, I know exactly what you are planning. And on the Sabbath, no less. You are all Sabbath violators. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, finally he's going to talk to the man again, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. No shock that he's angry, right? When every ounce of compassion within him demands that he set this man free on the Sabbath to once more be productive and an included member of the community. And they want to use that for petty reasons. If they truly understood from last week, or from five minutes ago, depending on you know when this thing happened, that Sabbath was for the benefit of man, that it serves man and not the other way around, then they would want this man restored. But he's just an opportunity for them opportunity to discredit Yeshua 
based on petty arguments that will, in and of themselves, never do a thing to lift the terrible burdens this man carries. Their hearts are hardened, like Pharaoh. That's right. Another link to the Exodus thing. You know, you just, once you know that the patterns are there, it just becomes fun to look for them. And that's one of the things that I like to do when teaching kids. I like to teach them the patterns. You know, honor and shame is one of those things. You teach a kid about honor and shame, and man, they can find it quicker than you do. They'll ask better questions than you will too. <laughs> they just, they don't have the paradigms about scripture. They just, they see it for the first time. They're like, oh my gosh, that's honor and shame. Anyway, we will be back in just a few minutes. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This is episode 69, The Withered Hand. It's the fifth controversy dialogue, and uh, the last one. Not, it's not going to be the last controversial thing, but it's just this grouping of dialogues where Yeshua has gone from... Um, they've been disagreements, but they... Uh, went from milder to more severe. And this one, of course, is the most severe. Not in terms of what he's saying, because it's not even the most controversial, but it's the most severe in terms of the opposition that he's being presented with. And uh, so the last verse, I'm just going to read the last verse again, verse 5. This is chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around them at, at, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Um, and like I had mentioned just before the break, we have the hardened hearts mention. And of course, what has been one of the many themes of Mark? The Exodus. You know, hearkening back to the wilderness and the Exodus and to the future Exodus that's going to be inaugurated at the cross. Isaiah's Exodus at the cross. And uh, so, yeah, he's comparing them. No, the writer's comparing them to Pharaoh here. So it's not bad enough they got compared to King Saul. Um, they're getting compared to Pharaoh, too. I mean, who else would deny healing to a man? Who cares what day it is? Anyway, Yeshua says... Stretch out your hand. Now, why should this sound familiar? Where else do we see a reference to that? Well, in Genesis 3, uh, verse 22, And then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And you're saying, I don't see any similarities. Well, just stay with me here. Don't turn off the channel yet. <laughs> now, after the sin in the garden, Adam and Eve were permanently prevented from stretching out their hands to eat of the tree of life by being exiled from the garden, right? From paradise. They had to go out and live in a world where they had to work hard every day just to survive. When Yahweh gave the Sabbath 
to Israel at Sinai, it was a once-a-week return to paradise where they could escape the world where they had to survive through hard toil, right? So the Sabbath is inherently a time of rest, not only rest, but also restoration. We've talked about this before. Not only is it a time for healing, as with Peter's mother-in-law, it is the most appropriate time for healing because Sabbath is a glimpse of the world to come where there will be no more sickness. We lost paradise, but once a week we get to live in a get to live a whole lot nearer to it. Okay. If Sabbath represents God um, resting in the midst of His creation and our release from slavery and Egypt, why would it honor God for people to be suffering on that day above all others? Isn't it an abominable shame? Is he really going to be impressed with our trying to keep people in bondage on the day of our release from it? So, yes. Yeshua is angry. And with good reason. Not only because he knew what they were about to go do, and on the Sabbath, no less, but because they had no compassion on this poor man's predicament. They would rather see him shamed, suffering, an outcast, then restored, rejoicing, and reintegrated back to the community of Israel. And you know, for all we know, his family was living in poverty too. That this had happened as an adult after he was married and had had kids and he had people to support, we just don't know. There are whole potential backstories here that we just don't know about. But what we do know is this man has a legitimate need, period. Now Yeshua tells this man, who hasn't spoken a single word up to this point, which would be understandable if he lived as a shamed outcast, all right? So Yeshua tells him to stretch out his hand, and he does so. Hand was restored. No one did any work even. Yeshua spoke no incantations, uttered no words commanding healing, he just told the man to stretch out his hand, and the man obeyed. In the end, no one could even accuse him of having done any work. All they could do was glorify God. But we actually don't hear about that happening, although I'm certain that the, the regular townspeople, synagogue, I bet they were just going bonkers praising the Lord. Now, what was the response of the Pharisees? Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They just left, and immediately, that means on the Sabbath, met up with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees hated the Herodians. You have to know this. The Herodians were supporters of Herod, and therefore Roman collaborators. Herod Antipas was a Jew only because his great-grandfather had, had forcibly converted when John Hyrcanus conquered Edom and told all the inhabitants to become Jews or else. So, the children of Esau were forced into the fold of Judaism, but they were never accepted by the Jews. All right, the, the thing is, here's the deal. The Pharisees had zero political pull or power. 
The only thing they had was influence with people, but actual authority? No. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. As much as it would have galled them, just to no end, they found themselves holding their noses in order to collaborate with their despised enemies. But enemies who actually did have power. If they were going to do away with Yeshua, which didn't happen, they ended up somehow unable to follow through and it was left to the Sadducees to do the dirty work. Um, but if they were going to be successful, they needed power. The Herodians supplied that. Or, I mean, at least in Galilee they did. Remember that this is not chronological and Mark is presenting subject blocks, blocks not a timeline. If this happened right before Yeshua and his disciples left Galilee for Judea, then there was no opportunity for this alliance to bear fruit. And it could have happened that way. Or perhaps the Herodians just didn't care and sent them packing. Text doesn't really say here. If Herod Antipas' power wasn't threatened, they might have really not been interested in the uproar that this would create on Herod's home turf. But let's not miss the big punchline here. Because they left the synagogue and went immediately to the Herodians, which means they were plotting to destroy him and on the Sabbath, no less. Do you remember Yeshua's challenge to them? And he said to them, this is verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. So what was he saying? Is it okay with God on the Sabbath to do something good for a person or to harm him? Does God want us to save a life or assassinate life? Because remember, that's what the word translated as kill means. Apokteno, to assassinate a political opponent. It's been established now that Yeshua knew what was in their hearts. We saw that in the first controversy dialogue at the beginning of Mark chapter 2 when the scribes were accusing him of blasphemy, but only in their hearts. Yeshua here sees that they are laying in wait for him and for the purpose of destroying him. He uses a word meaning assassination. The fact that they're doing it on the Sabbath makes it even more disgusting, and especially when they were trying to catch him, quote-unquote, sinning by their interpretations and ordinances. And they were silent. How could he know what they were planning? Later, we will see one specific accusation of where they assumed he was getting his information. But in verse 6, verse 6 says that they want to figure out how to destroy him. And the word for destroy should be familiar to the readers of Revelation. Not Revelations, please. It's like when my husband says nuclear. He's a chemical engineer. He should know better. He had the my first two years of chemistry are the same as his first two years of chemistry. <laughs> he should know it's nuclear. And it's revelation, not revelations. It's just, it makes you cringe, you know? Anyway, this word is apolime. Apolime. And where do we see that? It's the name of the angel from the bottomless pit, Apollyon, a.k.a. the destroyer in Revelation. Now, remember, I read to you about Jeroboam and his well-deserved withered hand. 
And by the way, I might have mispronounced Apollina. <laughs> I'm not good with Greek. I just tried to do English, okay? Anyway, <laughs> um, after he reached out, after Jeroboam reached out his hand against God's prophet and it withered, he repented and had it restored. In fact, he repented so hard that he actually invited the prophet to share table fellowship with him, which is as serious as repentance gets. Going from wanting to kill the guy to accepting him at his own dinner table, dang, that's some intense stuff right there. Remember that who you shared table fellowship with in the ancient world was incredibly important. And why the scribes um, and the Pharisees were often butting heads with Yeshua over who he had the audacity to eat with. When Jeroboam accepted the prophet at his table, he was accepting Yahweh. And, by the way, this is what's behind the meaning... <coughs> Excuse me. Of Matthew 10, <coughs> verses 40 through 42. Whosoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is righteous, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple... Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Yeshua was seen as accepting all the wrong people, but the Pharisees and scribes were rejecting the wrong person. Um, as you recall from a few weeks back, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, one of the core truths of the kingdom, echoing how Yeshua actually lived out his ministry. Starting in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, which means verbally abusive, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church, or is it not in those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the Pharisees had it backwards. God wanted them to be reaching out to sinners and outcasts, to shun Jews who were wicked and to accept Yeshua, but they shun the sinners and outcasts, collaborated with the Herodians and wanted to destroy Yeshua. And the sad thing is that they knew the scriptures better than anyone except for Yeshua. But knowledge isn't anything without revelation, revelation and good fruit. A lot of people out there claim to love God when what they love is a knowledge of doctrines and factoids. They may love the status of being an elite member of a remnant. They may love having a, a biblical stick to hit other people with, okay? Religion might be appealing to their pride. Maybe they got into the ministry in order to feel relevant and to cater to their need for the audience. Boy, do I see that a lot. Um, 
Maybe they grew up thinking that this was what good people do, and so that's why they did it. But that sort of thing always leads to stagnancy and bitterness and contempt, not love. Love's come, love comes from an intimate and vibrant relationship with God. Loving God doesn't mean no doubts. Just look at Job, the prophets, the psalmists. I mean, goodness sakes, look at Jeremiah. They had great faith, but they doubted and even argued with God. Heck, Elijah did too. But they trusted in their covenant relationship with God, and he changed them from the inside out. <clears throat> religion tells us to associate with the religious people, to shun the irreligious people, and to trust in those with whom we agree. God tells us to associate with those who do not know him so that they can know him, and to disassociate with those who claim to know him but live depraved lives. And so Jeroboam, healed of the withered hand, decides to accept God's prophet by inviting him to dinner, but God told the prophet not to eat with anyone in Samaria. Why? Because those were his covenant people living in gross sin, and actual idolatry, not the stuff that people call idolatry nowadays, which is a stretch, you know, when, when you look at what it actually meant when they were saying it. Jeroboam didn't change his ways. He just regretted trying to seize the prophet. And here is, and here are the Pharisees, okay, joining hands with the Herodians to destroy a man on the Sabbath. You know, the things we do in the name of religion, eh? And, and we're the same. I watch people destroying or trying to destroy teachers all the time over minor disagreements calling disagreements heresies, when in fact they're just truly debatable issues, okay? Or a mistake, or just a lack of knowledge. I, I read scholarly books all the time by wonderful men and women of God, and sometimes I will come across something, and I just wince because I think, oh my gosh, they've got it all wrong. But does disagreeing with me mean they're false teachers? Not at all. I don't allow 1% to overshadow 99%. Heck, if I can learn stuff from 50% of their book and disagree with 50%, then I've still benefited under their tutelage. We're all very much self-absorbed, and, and that's why people go stagnant. Just like the Pharisees. So desperate to rid themselves of this threat that they're willing to endure people whom they detested in order to get it done. Frankly, you know, just like the chief priests with Pontius Pilate, they wouldn't come in his residence because they didn't want to be unclean for the eating of the Passover. But they would use him to have Yeshua crucified, all right? But, you know, I'm getting my, ahead of myself is that's a long way off at this point. Not that I'm giving any spoilers because you guys already know this. I would be actually really shocked if any of you didn't know this who were listening. Now, next week, we're going to shift gears and get out of the controversy dialogues and head into the naming of the Twelve. And to do this, we're going to be looking at all the gospel accounts and discuss why they don't agree with each other on the subject of names and all that. Hopefully, that'll be interesting. And uh, the week after that will be uh, very interesting, for me anyway, as we cover the Beelzebul accusation. 
and talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is always a hotly debated topic, but for the last, oh, what, five minutes here, I want to talk, and, and hopefully this is in a long distant past now, and no one's going to be emotional about it anymore, because I'm recording this first week of June. I like to get ahead just in case I have, like, a stroke. And I'm not able to record because sometimes that happens, and it's like weeks before I can record again. So I do this, and it's it saved my it saved my butt uh, more than a few times. <clears throat> but I want to talk about rioters and looters versus protesters, and I want to compare it to something that I see that's a really disturbing problem online. Um. And social media with the messianics and, and people in the Hebrew roots movement. Anyway, so right now, you know, we've got this big thing, and I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I know how it's trending right now. Um, the original protesters uh, over the George Floyd killing, um, they got hijacked really, really bad by instigators coming in from other communities out of town by, um, looks like Antifa. Actually, I saw a video of them getting their butts kicked by a group of protesters the other day saying, no, you know what, this is a peaceful protest and we will kick your butts. And they did to get you out. You know, we're not going to have you destroy our community or destroy this protest. But um, so we've got these these terrorists coming in and instigating violence and destroying other people's communities and and unfortunately sometimes riling up the people in the communities to um, destroy their own communities but but mostly it looks like the people doing the damage are from the outside i saw one city say that a hundred percent of the ones being arrested were from out of town and another uh said eighty percent so but i saw one video that really really moved me and you've got these white women, okay? These white ladies. I'm going to, no, not ladies, white women, okay? And they've got their masks on. And um, they're spray painting Black Lives Matter on the side of buildings. And like there are black people around them saying, don't you do that. We're going to take the blame for that. You know, you don't talk for us. You don't spray paint a building in our community, you know, and, and make us look bad. You know, black lives do matter. I agree that black lives matter. Um, you know, just, just saying my, I'm, I'm a future cop, cop mom. Okay. And I agree that black lives matter. Uh, I especially agree that they, they matter in the womb, but we're not going there right now. But, here you have, once the spray paint is up, if someone hadn't taken a video, people would look at that and say, ugh, there they are defacing everything, these Black Lives Matter people, when in reality it's a bunch of white women. They got it on tape. You know, when you've got a righteous cause, but people are going about that cause unrighteously, it makes the righteous cause look unrighteous. And that is a horrible thing to do. It's like these guys standing outside of abortion clinics where people are peacefully protesting and they're yelling at these women who are in crisis and being jerks and making abortion look like it must be right because these other guys are so evil. All right? But what it reminded me of, 
And this will unfortunately still be, it, it, and I'll tell you something, one thing I've really loved, and I was bawling my eyes out yesterday, people sending me videos all over the place, is that I am seeing peaceful protesters, police officers, and community members coming together in order to make sure that these people can protest without violent agitators coming in and, and destroying the protest and destroying the community. And it's wonderful to see. It's what we should all do. We should all work together. Okay, because they work together. We should work together more. But I see this thing on Facebook. It has been driving me crazy for a lot of years. People come into the Hebrew Roots Movement or Messianic Jews and they give up their born name, at least on Facebook. They take on a fake Hebrew name. And I don't have problems with people who do it who are kind. But I'll tell you something. When you take on a fake Hebrew name and you're on the internet fighting with people, reviling, being verbally abusive, which is one of the things that Paul said don't eat, even eat with verbally abusive people, um, just being nitpicky and nasty. And you know what it looks like to people who don't know anything about the Hebrew Roots Movement or Messianic Judaism? It looks like Jews are doing it. And let me tell you, there's enough true anti-Semitism in this world without people with fake Hebrew names behaving boorishly and bringing it on that community. It's no different than those white women spray-painting Black Lives Matter. All right? It's the same thing. Oh, well, I've got my husband's evil cat come in. How'd you get in? Anyway, so it's really serious. We do not have the right to represent another community badly, and especially when we are not the ones that will face the violent repercussions if we do. See you next week.